The next case is 2023-009 in the matter of Brooke Smith versus The Ohio State University. On behalf of the appellant, Mr. Gall, good morning. Good morning, Your Honor. Uh, How are you? Very fine, thank you. Madam Chief Justices, Justices, um, my friend Mr. Simpkins, uh, this morning, Your Honor, with, with me at council table are my colleagues, Ms. Elizabeth Trebian, Mr. Joseph DeAndrea, and Mr. Christopher Haas. Um, if it please the court, um, I'm here this morning on behalf of the Ohio State University. Um, the issue before the court, the issue that this appeal presents, is whether the Ohio Court of Claims has subject matter jurisdiction to hear cases that are subject to the discretionary function immunity defense. The court below said that it did. Um, respectfully, that decision was in error. The court below assumed that the Court of Claims had subject matter jurisdiction and analogized discretionary function immunity, immunity wrongly to the Ohio Public Duty Doctrine. In fact, they are as different as night is from day. Discretionary function immunity, if it please the court, is a remaining piece of sovereign immunity, which this court has upheld and defined now for 40 years since the decision in Reynolds. Uh, discretionary immunity, discretionary function immunity, protects and prevents the courts of this state from entertaining disputes either legislatively or judicially or as far as the executive is concerned from entertaining disputes that involve essential acts of governmental decision making. I'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. The public duty rule in this state on the other hand devolves from this court's decision in Sawicki. Originally it was a matter of common law, it's now in the statute as revised code section 274302A3. Uh, it is a defense to liability in actions and negligence. It has nothing to do with essential acts of governmental decision making. The court assumed that it did and went wrong in this case. This case is about the discretionary function immunity. The state of Ohio, the paramount obligation of the state of Ohio and its instrumentalities towards its citizens is to protect public health and safety. This court said so more than 100 years ago. It is the paramount obligation of the, of the state to protect health and safety. Uh, in this case, uh, in March, uh, Ohio State is an instrumentality of the state of Ohio. In March of 2020, this university, the Ohio State University, made a decision to transition instruction for the last five weeks of the spring 2020 quarter to an online mode instead of in person and to restrict access to most of the facilities on its Columbus, Ohio campus. It did that because of COVID and the threat that COVID represented. Much time has passed and much is known about COVID, but in 2020, when Ohio State was required to make that decision, COVID was a virus of unknown transmissibility and evident, uh, evident uh, uh, lethality. There isn't the real question here, not necessarily that decision and that judgment, but the decision not to refund the portions of the tuition and fees that were paid for 
full-time on-the-premises instruction? Well, that, that, Your Honor, is what the plaintiffs would like this, this court to conclude. In fact, I don't believe that's true. The decision to re, not to refund money was taken as a part of the decision to transition to online instruction. They're all one and the same and intertwined. It was all part of a single decision. But, but why? <clears throat> so, did, you're saying that the decision to close the campus per the governor's order and the health concern necessarily had to tie in with the decision not to refund monies. I mean, and not knowing the, the breakdown, obviously the lead plaintiff did get degrees, students did get degrees, there was some instruction given. But I thought the challenge was more so that, um, so for instance, if there had been a full refund, do you think we'd be here? Um, there certainly are circumstances, Your Honor, under which there might have been a full refund. This isn't one of them. When I say the decision not to refund and the decision to transition to online were intertwined, the transition, as plaintiffs have now conceded, I'm sorry, appellees have now conceded, there is no qualitative difference between online instruction and in-person instruction. Uh, they are the same. We charge the same, it's the same instruction. I thought, I thought they called it subpar education. Oh, they did in the complaint, Your Honor. This case has taken many twists and turns. Originally as pled and as argued out of the gate, the appellant's, the appellee's contention was that it was a qualitative difference in the education. And that would present a different scenario in the answer to Your Honor's question than the one that I'm, I'm addressing here. That's gone. They have now conceded that there is no qualitative difference they had to do that to avoid the bar to suit that the educational malpractice decisions of this court would represent otherwise. But the, the, the problem that I'm having is that we really didn't accept your, uh, your uh, discretionary immunity as a proposition of law, and you're bringing it back in because you're saying that it's jurisdictional, whereas your opponent's saying that it's an affirmative defense that you waived and um, can't argue here on the, for the first time. And, and the reason that they're saying it's an, it's an affirmative defense is because it, it um, requires factual information that can't be determined just on the pleadings. Can you help me? Uh, uh, and uh, I know you talked about public duty, but I don't think you spent enough time explaining how the um, discretionary immunity is actually a jurisdictional question. <sighs> The issue that this court accepted, Your Honor, and the issue that it did not accept are clearly closely related to each other. Discretionary function immunity is an extension of, of uh, sovereign immunity. But it's judicially created. It's an created. absolute bar to jurisdiction. In order to be an absolute bar to the jurisdiction of the Court of Claims, it must involve an essential act of governmental decision making. And this court in Reynolds said what it meant by that and I have it in my notes, and I'm happy to read it for your honor, but it's in the Reynolds case. In order for, for the court to lack subject matter jurisdiction, it has to qualify as an essential act of discretionary immunity, of, of discretionary function immunity, but, an but essential immunity act of governmental immunity. And on the face of the complaint, I believe it can be determined without anything more that this decision taken at this time by the university before the state made its stay-at-home order was one of those decisions. All that's in the complaint. But I don't think the, the decision's being questioned. I think what's being questioned is what, how the decision was implemented. A, a, am I, I mean, am I correct there? 
Because no one's questioning the decision. The, the claim is for damages resulting from the decision. The claim with respect to the tuition refund is nothing more than a damage claim that relates to the decision. Except Anything it's not torts, it's contract. Well, that's right, Your Honor. Discretionary function immunity is not a, an immunity tied to the name of the cause of action given to the claim by the, by the plaintiffs. The, it, is, it, is a, it is an immunity that derives from the essential character of the decision in question. That character, that decision, and that character can be determined from the face of the complaint. And if, Your Honor, that was not sufficient, in this particular case, there is an extensive record about what went into that decision, who was involved, what, how they agonized over it. Remember, the state had not acted yet to shut down any facilities, except in some respects. The stay-at-home order, which would have prevented all the students from going on to campus in Columbus, hadn't been issued yet. It didn't come out until three weeks later. Ohio State was required, all this is in the record, the Ohio State was required to act and act quickly, and that decision was described in the complaint, and there is a record that supports the nature of that so decision. So the decision you're talking about is the decision to shut down, and I think the decision she's talking about is the decision to make her pay, because she's doing student teaching, code of bus services, and all the related fees with the internship that she had to do as a student teacher, which she couldn't do because of COVID. My colleagues will, will hate me for making this analogy, Your Honor, but it's like saying a jelly donut is really two donuts, one with the jelly and one with the dough. The decision to refund, not to refund, was a part of the decision to transition the same quality of instruction from in-person to online in some circumstances. It's exactly the same. At most, the decision not to refund are simply damages flowing from the decision. To the extent there really are two decisions there, I say to the court, in, in all candor, on the face of this complaint and on the record before the court, both of those decisions, if there are two of them, are key decisions and involve essential acts of governmental decision making. So could the university waive immunity? The university cannot waive immunity. They can waive liability if they don't timely assert the def public duty defense, yes. That is a waivable defense. That, that obtains in negligence actions, and it's a defense to liability. It has to be timely raised and argued by the court. And it was argued, it was raised as a defense here in the answer to the complaint. But that's, that is a waivable defense. Sovereign immunity, discretionary function immunity, is not waivable. That is a subject matter jurisdiction defect, and it can be raised, as this court has said, at any time at any time. This is, these, these were complicated times, Your Honor. There was a lot going on. But is discretionary immunity, you're saying it's sovereign immunity? Yes, Your Honor. That's what this court has said. This court in Reynolds said that when the, when the General Assembly enacted the Court of Claims Act in 1975, it only waived a limited amount of sovereign immunity. It did not waive sovereign immunity for essential acts of governmental decision making. The court said that in Reynolds. The court reiterated that in uh, Wallace, both of which are in the brief. That's a very important point that Your Honor has raised. The discretionary function immunity is sovereign immunity. It was not waived by the Court of Claims Act, and it remains there, and this court has said that uh, for continuously now for almost 40 years. Okay, so so where, where we, where it seems like you and your colleague on the other side extremely differ then is whether deciding to continue to enforce the bargain without having to supply what OSU had agreed to do, that that was also an act of sovereign immunity, correct? 
That was that was a decision that okay. was within your sovereign immunity to make. If it pleased the court, Your Honor, I, I, I don't want to disagree with Your Honor, but I, You're allowed I, to. I, yeah, okay. I disagree with Your Honor to the extent that was the Court of Appeals conclusions. It is the, it, whatever you call the claim, breach of contract, by the way, there is no contract claim here, that's, and, and, but I'm going to put that aside. Whether you, well, you, you wouldn't call have, you the wouldn't claim. Well, you wouldn't have let her do student teaching if she didn't pay her fees, right? Pardon? You wouldn't have let her do student teaching if she didn't pay her fees, correct? That's right. So that's not a contract? Whatever the underlying cause of action is, negligence, tort, contract, whatever it's called, the overarching principle here that has to do with sovereign immunity is that where decisions, the character of the decision made by the executive, by the legislature, or by the courts involves an essential act, a big time decision, essential act of governmental decision making, no court in this state has jurisdiction to entertain a claim based on that. It trumps everything. It is a residue of sovereign immunity, just like I'm old enough to remember when sovereign immunity was an absolute bar to any claim against the state. And when the Court of Claims Act was initiated, they carved out some things and said, okay, the state can now be sued. But they kept the decision in Reynolds and in Wallace and in other decisions from this court. This court has said that did not extend. Sovereign immunity still extends to essential acts of governmental decision making. And that is an important principle to be upheld here. There's 90,000 faculty. It, it, is the decision in Reynolds consistent with the language of the uh, Court of Claims Act? Yes, Your Honor. I mean, it, it, it's, it's, I don't see anything in the Court of Claims Act that, that supports uh, this carve out that Reynolds created. I can tell Your Honor that the court in Reynolds and again in Wallace said that what that carve out, what 274302 means is that the state still can't be sued. Yeah, I, I, I understand that's what, I understand that. I'm just trying, I just have a hard time reconciling that with the language of the, of the Court of Claims Act. Well, that language doesn't seem to, there's no suggestion of that language anywhere in there. The Court of Claims Act, the Court of Claims Act, it's a very simple phrase, and I can only paraphrase it from memory, uh, that it waived the, uh, the immunity of the state with respect to claims that uh, could have been brought between private parties, something well, like that. Well, it says with, with, with the same rules of law applicable to suits between private parties. What Reynolds and Wallace, yes, Your Honor, what Reynolds and Wallace recognize is that the state has important obligations, health and safety being paramount, that do not represent things that private parties could have brought before the court. And I believe that was the rationale of Reynolds. I'm not, not old enough to have been in, around when that was written. Well, and I wasn't, that that I, seems more like a public policy rationale than a textual It, it is one. exactly a public policy rationale, Your Honor. The, this court for 40 years has said there are some things we're not going to let go into the, into the uh, judicial processes. And, and interestingly, Reynolds says judicial, legislative, or executive. Uh, there are certain decisions in all of those categories that we are going to say the courts don't have jurisdiction over. And that is exactly this particular decision, which is apparent from the face of the complaint and on the record before the court, is one of those health and safety decisions that needs to be given deference uh, because we cannot be second-guessing after the fact, in hindsight, 
those kinds of decisions upon which health and safety depend. Um, it's, it, it is, I'll, I have 12 seconds left and I'll just say there's another interesting jurisdictional anomaly. If Reynolds is correct, then the Court of Claims, the Court of Claims Act gave the, uh, the Court of Claims jurisdiction to hear only those cases as to which there was a waiver. If Reynolds is correct, then there's a statutory basis to say the Court of Claims does not have jurisdiction here. Uh, and in addition to sovereign immunity, uh, there is no jurisdiction here in the Court of Claims to hear this, this suit because it involves health and safety decisions. Well, I, 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 and I don't understand why that's not your primary argument, that just the statutes. Uh, uh, because I'm old, Your Honor. It, it, <laughs> sovereign immunity, when I, I had the pleasure of working in the Ohio Attorney General's office before the Court of Claims Act, and I can tell Your Honor that in all the courts of this state where I had the pleasure of appearing, the sovereign immunity defense was front and center. And when the Court of Claims Act came along, we raised that as an extension of sovereign immunity. That's what the implication of Reynolds is, that there's still sovereign immunity alive and well with respect to this narrow range of decisions that the state and its instrumentalities are called on to make. The, the statute clearly does also implicate the Court of Claims subject matter jurisdiction. Uh, but as I say, I'm old, so I put, I put the emphasis on the first rather than the second, but they're an equally viable basis for denying jurisdiction here. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you. Mr. Simpkins, good morning. Good morning, Your Honor. May it please the Court, my name is Scott Simpkins with the Clamaco Wilcox Law Firm here on behalf of the plaintiff. Um, I, first, I'd like to apologize. My co-counsel in this case uh, got stuck in weather, so I was not able to make it here today, um, but I will do my best. I, 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 I think I'd like to start actually going to what Justice DeWine was raising with regard to the, the statutory interpretation, because I think that actually resolves the, the limited issue for why we're here, which is whether or not the discretionary immunity is, in fact, a subject matter jurisdiction issue or if it's an affirmative defense. The, the statutory language at issue states the state hereby waives its immunity from liability, except as provided, relating to a fire marshal, uh, and consents to be sued and have its liability determined in the court of claims created in this chapter in accordance with the same rules of law applicable to suits between private parties. It was this language that the Reynolds court, upon which the appellant relies, that, the, that this court decided that that language is what creates or there is a recognition in the Court of Claims Act for discretionary immunity. But it did not focus on whether or not this was a subject matter jurisdiction well, issue. Well, but, but wait, what the court said in Reynolds is, it said very explicitly that that language means the state cannot be sued for the exercise of an executive or planning function. I mean, I, I, I agree with you, that's not what the language says, but yeah. that's clearly what the court in Reynolds said that language means. So I don't understand, I guess I'll let you tell me why I'm wrong, but I don't understand how you're successful unless we overrule Reynolds, because Reynolds seems to say pretty explicitly that that's, that's what the jurisdictional language means. There, there is a presupposition that appellant makes here that the discretionary function um, immunity actually applies to this fact, or to, these, to this fact situation. And, I, and, I, and this goes to uh, Justice Stewart's comment with regard to there is a difference between 
the determination that the governor and the Department of Health and Ohio State made with regard to closing the facilities in light of the COVID uh, emergency versus the determination that Ohio State made with regard to the refund of a portion of the tuition. The issue of whether or not the discretionary immunity applies still would be decided, in my opinion, by the court, uh, by the court of claims. If it's determined that the discretionary function uh, applied, then that would be a bar. But the issue before this court right now isn't whether discretionary immunity applies because this court has rejected uh, a taking that proposition law. Rather, the issue Well, but we, we did take the jurisdictional ones. I mean, we, we can't answer one without the other, right? Oh, I think you can, Your Honor. I think that the, the issue of whether it's a subject matter jurisdiction issue or if it's an affirmative defense is pretty clear. I think that the, the Reynolds and the statute support the, uh, the argument that the issue is whether or not there is liability here, and the liability ties into whether or not that uh, discretionary function immunity okay, applies. Well, well let's, let's just stick to the question of whether it's subject matter jurisdiction. Yes. And um, I mean, so, so that goes back to my earlier question is, I don't understand how you can prevail uh, on that issue unless we overrule Reynolds. Because Reynolds, Reynolds seems pretty clearly to say that the, the matter, the language that defines the court's subject matter jurisdiction uh, makes clear that it cannot be sued for an executive Planning function. Maryland says this language means. I mean, yeah. I don't know yeah, how you can get it, around that. Correct. Right. It says that it, it, the state shall have its liability determined. That language from the uh, uh, Court of Claims Act, uh, in in accordance with the same rules of law applicable suits between private parties, means that the state cannot be sued for its legislative or judicial functions or the exercise of an executive or planning function involving the making of basic policy uh, decision. But what? That I mean, doesn't that make it jurisdictional? I mean, how does that not make it jurisdictional? It, but it's focused on the issue of the language from the statute determining liability. And the, so the underlying... Well, but so it cannot be sued. I mean, that goes beyond liability, cannot be sued. Well, that's, that's ultimately, though, a, the, court of, the court of claims, somebody's going to have to determine whether or not that immunity applies in the first instance. Counsel, if I read Reynolds right, um, once a policy decision has been made, which has been characterized by a high degree of official judgment or discretion, that decision, as I read it, says once that decision's been made to engage in a certain activity or function, that the state may be held liable, quote, in the same manner as private parties for the negligence of the actions of its employees and agents in the performance of such activities. Would that extend also to breach of contract? Yes. Yes, Your Honor, um, and, and you were you were correct. The the just because there is an immunity relating to the underlying decision doesn't mean that the implementation of that decision there it can be liability for by the state for the implementation of that protected or uh, decision. And that's where I get to the issue of that. Ultimately, the determination of whether the um, discretionary immunity applies has to be determined in the first instance by the court, and then in the second instance, whether the implementation of that policy is, um, was done in a way that um, it was, creates liability on behalf of the state. See, so the, the Court of Appeals sent this back to the Court of Claims. That's where it is right now. Or, correct. That's where the order is. Can, can they amend their answer and assert an, an affirmative defense of 
Your Honor, they don't even have to because they've already asserted the affirmative defense in their answer. And, and in fact, um, if I recall uh, correctly, summary judgment briefing is still pending before the trial court's held in abeyance in light of the, uh, the current appeal, but their summary judgment is still pending before the court, including a, an argument relating to this discretionary function immunity. Do, do you think um, that perhaps the reason that the 10th District reversed on certifying a class was because your client's situation as a student teacher is a little bit different and there are more um, discernible costs that she, that, that not everyone in the class would, it would be as likely to be able to recover? I, I don't believe so, Your Honor. I, I believe because the Court of Appeals looked at, um, I, our, our office is involved in six of these cases. Um, and the Court of Appeals reversed all six of those, and I think there's a couple other uh, cases um, involving other counsel. And the, the, the basis was that they didn't believe that the trial court had engaged in the rigorous analysis as to the, um, the, the, the class, and therefore uh, remanded for the trial court to engage in that rigorous analysis. Um, my, my recollection uh, with the six cases is uh, one of them, there was a hearing held. The other five, they were done on the papers. And um, I believe that they, um, there was a determination made by the Court of Appeals that you need to uh, look to a certain degree, recognizing the, the limitations that this court and others have made, that, court, uh, that the class certification period is not a period when um, the, the merits of the case is supposed to be uh, determined. But at least there has to be looked at to a certain degree to determine whether or not um, the, the, the particular plaintiffs um, meet the class certification uh, standards. And that was, and, and those, that decision was essentially the same in, in all six uh, cases. Thank you. In light of the fact we took the one question and not the other, isn't it a fact, even if we found that discretionary function immunity was part of sovereign immunity, the case would still have to go back to determine if it applies in this case. That, that's, our, that's our position, Your Honor. Um, and we do believe that it, sh it, sh it, sh it is an affirmative defense because, and this gets to the- No, no, I'm saying even if we find it's part of sovereign immunity, right. it still would have to go back for somebody to find that it applies. Co correct, yes, 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 Your Honor. Um, and, and that gets kind of to one of the, the issues that, um, that was raised by appellant's counsel that he made mention to of the, uh, I've quoted it here, extensive record of what was involved in the decision. Well, that's where this is more in the vein of an affirmative defense because there is, there is and needs to be an extensive record prepared, presented to the court to determine whether or not the discretionary immunity actually applies to the facts of the situation as opposed to um, just a generally subject matter jurisdiction is a much more perfunctory review. It's a much more simple uh, issue as to whether, for example, the Court of Claims has jurisdiction over, you know, a, a, uh, non-state entities, things along those lines. Whereas this uh, issue, this issue is much more fact-centric, and that leads to the issue that this is actually an affirmative defense as opposed to a subject matter jurisdiction issue. Your Honor, Your Honors, I, the, the only other issue I wanted to briefly address 
and I don't think it's even necessary, but it's been raised in the briefing, is, is whether or not the court should reconsider its, to, its rejection of the proposition of law one that was presented by the appellants. And um, in, in light of the fact that, the, um, that the, that proposition of law was, was denied uh, by this court, our position is the, the, it shouldn't be re-reviewed at this time. Um, but even if it were to be, um, we think that it, it needs that factual record to be able to be pro adequately presented at the trial court level and then run the proper process. So unless there are any further questions, we'll rest. Um, the state constitution indicates that the manner for suits against the state should be provided by law, correct? Correct, Your Honor. Um, how would you apply that to the discretionary immunity raised by uh, the appellants? Well, I, I, again, I actually believe that the Court of Claims Act is very clear that the issue of whether or not a, what, what has become now known as discretionary immunity, it wasn't actually at the time of Reynolds, it wasn't called that. It was called that, it became called that, I believe, uh, late, late, later. But where I believe that the way the Court of Claims Act reads is consistent with Reynolds in that it says that this is an issue of liability and therefore this is an affirmative defense. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Your Mr. Gall, you used your time, but I'll give you a minute to respond. appreciate the minute. Um, I would like to, in my, in my minute, say just a couple of things. One is, Revised Code Section 274303 says that the Court of Claims is a court of record and has exclusive original jurisdiction of all civil actions against the state permitted by the waiver of immunity contained in Section 274302. It is that section that Reynolds says, and Wallace followed it, that the court has said that section does not include essential acts of governmental decision making. Therefore, the Court of Claims is without the jurisdiction to entertain this suit as a matter of statutory analysis. Counsel, what, what about all the case law that says that this is an affirmative defense? Your Honor, I, I appreciate the question, Your Honor. There are many cases, there are many cases that talk about, uh, that use the phrase affirmative defenses. Most of those cases arise in connection with political subdivisions. The enactment of RC 2744, the political subdivision statute, all of those talk about, the, that court says political, that statute says political subdivisions can't be sued, except, and then it says four or five exceptions, and then it says here are the defenses. And it talks about all those as defenses. Anything that is a defense to liability is an affirmative defense that must be pled and raised, and the state and its political subdivisions can waive those defenses. Discretionary immunity is a, is a remnant, is a residue of sovereign immunity, according to Reynolds, and Reynolds and Wallace say that as to that, there has not been a waiver of sovereign immunity, and therefore it continues. This, this uh, I understand let me say one other thing about this case going back. I, I urge the court to 
reconsider its decision with respect to this decision. Contrary to what my friend, Mr. Simpkins, says, there is a record here. And on the well, face but, of the But even if there is a record, it hasn't, it hasn't been briefed. There wasn't, there wasn't fair notice to the other side. How can we decide an issue that we explicitly decide we're not going to take? Subject matter jurisdiction can be raised at any time, Your Honor, and it's a de novo review. Sure, but, um, but, but, why, but why wouldn't we just send it back to the Court of, the Court of Appeals to decide that issue? There's a companion case to this case, McDermott versus The Ohio State University. It's been stayed pending the outcome of this case. In that case, the McDermott panel, a different panel than the Smith panel, went farther than the Smith panel and said, oh, this is a public duty defense that has to be presented to the trial court, which it's not. And then they went on to say, we forbid you from raising it when this goes back to the Court of Claims in the class action certification stage. That's why we came to this court. Okay, McDermott so, said you can't even raise it below. Okay, but, 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 it, but, if, but if we say that this is a matter of subject matter jurisdiction, but we didn't accept the proposition on whether or not uh, on, on the factual issue and sent it back to the Court of Appeals to resolve that proposition of law, why wouldn't that, why wouldn't that suffice? <clears throat> this case has been pending for three and a half years already. Uh, if it goes back to the Court of Appeals and back to the Court of Claims and back up here and back to this court, presumably someday, another three and a half years will pass. This case involves an essential act of governmental decision making, and this court is in a unique opportunity to bring this to a halt now and, and continue the line of cases rightly decided that began with Reynolds in 1984. We urge the court to do, to do it itself and not to send us back to the court below one panel of which has already said, we're not touching this, you got to go take it back to the Court of Claims and, and raise it there. But you can't do that in the class certification proceeding, which is the next phase headed back to the Court of Claims if this court doesn't resolve it now. Except the 10th District has on bonk ability, correct? I'm I mean, sorry, Your the, Honor. The 10th District with a couple of different panels, they, they, can, they can end up deciding something on bonk if they've got a conflict internally. Y yes, Your Honor, there, there are certainly procedures by which the Court of Appeals could go further than just the two independent panels. Yes. Um, again, um, this is a health and safety issue. We've been here three and a half years already. This court has it within its power to stop this. There is a fine legal basis and precedent from this court upon which this court could do so. And we urge this court to do that. We urge this court to do that. Thank you. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you. We will take the matter under advisement, and you will receive a decision from the court. Marshall, would you recess? <laughs>